it is your boy, and welcome to episode 56 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review the show, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why other people would like it also. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Well, Trump's back in the White House um, after being... What's the word? What, do you, what happens to you when you leave the hospital? You get um, not dispatched. I don't know, but he got let out of Walter Reed. Um, and he's been posting a bunch of crazy-ass videos since then. So uh, his message to the American public is, do not fear coronavirus. And, um, well, I guess that solves that. So I don't know about you guys, but I feel fucking safe. Um, actually, your boy is looking pretty fucking clean right now. I shaved my head, I cleaned my face, and uh, <sighs> I don't know why. Actually, that's the best thing that's going on for me right now. I don't know what it is, but it's like when I get... To, I, I always forget this, but it's like... If I don't shave my head for a while or, and I kind of let my facial hair grow out a little bit, of course, I look disheveled. And I don't really know... I guess I don't really notice it while it's happening... But I start to feel a little down, and it's like I always forget, but as soon as I clean my, as soon as I shave my head and shave my face, it's like I feel a thousand times better. It looks so much cleaner. Um, I was actually telling my girlfriend this, it was like, of course I'm already burping. I don't know what it is about the podcast recently, but I've been burping like a motherfucker. Maybe, maybe something is wrong with me. We ended the other episode, like two weeks ago, with me having the hiccups, and I've just been burping. Maybe I have some kind of, like, gastritis, or maybe I have a, I'm fomenting an ulcer or something. I think fomenting's a word. I gotta Google it. Hopefully it's not something, um, um, hopefully it's not something bad. But the point is, is that maybe something seriously wrong with me. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe we got off on the wrong foot here. I think I was talking about me shaving my head and my face. Um... Yeah, I always forget that it makes me feel better, and it's so funny because it's like the hair on the top of my head has thinned so much in the last, geez, probably like, actually ever since I started dating my girlfriend. <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly, but uh, probably just the passage of time. But uh, yeah, the hair on top of my head has thinned out insanely, and it's like when your hair is just receding, it's just like you have like sad hair on the top of your head, like light passes through it and stuff. But I've worn my hair short for the last, uh, geez, I think I say, I think I cut it real short when I was like 17, and I don't think I ever looked back. Um, it may have been 19 or something. The point is, is that for most of my adult life, I've had really short hair, so even though the hairline wasn't great, um, you know, um, I don't know, some people with thinning hair, they, they, they try to pull off optical illusions with their hair. Um, it's the type of thing that, that females sometimes do when they, um, they shave off their eyebrows and they, and they, um, and they draw them on. Uh, there was an episode, I think at the beginning of this podcast at some point where I was talking about your picture face. Um, people kind of go through life and when they look at themselves in the mirror, they don't realize it, but they make these little micro adjustments that make them feel better about their physical appearance. Um, but the truth is, is you're, you look your best when you're, I don't, I don't know if it's when you're casual necessarily, but you can't really control for the times where you look most attractive. It's really going to be in a moment where you sort of smile or where you make, have a genuine laugh or something, something you can't control for. But because we look in the mirror and we have our own inventory of things about ourselves that we don't like, we, we sort of subconsciously or have conditioned ourselves to correct for them when, when we look in the mirror. We'll suck in our cheeks. We'll sort of tilt our head a certain way that we think is a, is a more flattering angle to ourselves. Um, and I think uh, makeup and hair kind of have the same effect. Like we style it in a way, but we're not realizing that we're compensating. Like we, b by the way we're sort of experiencing ourselves in the mirror, we're not really able to see all the angles, right? So it's like someone styles their hair in such a way that it looks great when they're in the bathroom mirror. But if you have a super thin head of hair, when you step out into the sunlight, people can see through it. You know, light light starts passing through your hair at a certain point, or your scalp shows. And you just, you don't have that kind of insight, right? So the best thing to do, I think, if you're balding, is just shave your head. Um, and now that I've done it, and now that I see how much better it looks, I'm not saying I wasn't more handsome when I had a full head of hair, although I, I do happen to think I look better with a shaved head. But um, 
not everyone is this way. Like some people just don't have the head for it, right? Like they're sort of a classically, I don't know, attractive head shape. I don't know what you want to call it. I don't even know how to describe it. But some people just don't look good with a shaved head. But I, I still think people look exponentially better with a shaved head. Even if they don't look ideal, they look better with a shaved head than they do with a head full of sad hair. Um, I mean, there's so many actors, comedians or something, they, you sort of have always known them with a shaved head. And when you see a photo of them when, you, when they're younger, when they have some hair on their head, they don't look as good. They look better. They look their best when they have a full head of hair or when they're... Yeah, okay. I, on the, It's a continuum of hair. It's a uh, follicle continuum. At one end, you have a full head of hair, and on the other end, you're bald. And that's where you look your best. Anywhere in between is kind of a fucking nightmare. So, um, I don't want to tell people what to do. I don't want to um, prop up... Uh, um, I don't know. I'm trying to be funny here. I was going to say I don't want to prop up, uh, um, I don't know, beauty standards or whatever, socialized beauty standards or whatever, but uh, I guess I kind of am doing that. Um, but I think people look their best when they shave their head. Anyway, oh, man, I got to be honest with you. I'm talking fast and I'm trying to get away from how I was feeling just before I started doing this. Um, it's a, sort of a work-related issue, and uh, I'm not really firing people necessarily, but uh, I had to have a difficult conversation with somebody, and it was, it was not comfortable. Um, it's actually, maybe it's kind of good it's coming up, because um, it was something I was thinking about just now when I was brushing my teeth, which is, I think one, one thing that's hard for me, and I think it's hard for other people too, is just to kind of trust my judgment. Um, I was sort of, uh, checking in with, uh, my supervisor about this situation where I thought I was going to have to have a, have a difficult, difficult conversation with somebody. And, um, at the end of it, they just asked me like, well, what do you want from me? Not in a dismissive way, but to just kind of focus my thinking, like, like genuinely, what was I hoping to get out of consulting with them? And I told them, I kind of just want permission to trust my gut on this issue. And I just kind of want your permission to kind of do what I want with the situation. And they were like, you have my permission. Like, go forth. I trust your judgment. Do your thing. Um, but that's hard. You know, in life, I, I think many of us, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, there's kind of two things that happen, right? When somebody does something, and I'm talking broadly now, I'm not just talking about work, I'm talking about socially, but when somebody does something that we don't like or that bothers us, you know, maybe it's a cliche at this point, but it's like the things that bother you the most about other people um, are the things that bother you about yourself, right? And so there's something about this individual in particular, which is, um, it, it's not that there's anything wrong with them, but there's something about this presentation that they have that kind of disqualifies them from doing their job effectively. Um, that kind of reminds me of something I worry about. Now, I I know for a fact I don't possess... Um, this deficit to the extreme that this person does, but I feel like I have a seed of it, right? So on the one hand, you know, maybe that's why I have such a strong reaction to it. But on the other hand, um, uh, the other side of the coin, I guess, is that it makes me very sympathetic to their situation. Um, and actually, as I'm talking about this, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be talking about it. So, um, maybe I should shut the book up, but, um, but I, I guess I'm trying to weave this into something that's an interesting for us to think about, which is um, trusting our gut. You know, and I think it's something that applies to work situations. I think it's something that applies to relationships. But you know, a lot of times, a lot of times when we're in a new situation, and it could be a new work environment, it could be a romantic relationship that we're in. But we may have. I don't want to say um, red flags, but we have some criticisms. And if it's a new space for us, it's easier. For, it's easy for us not to trust our judgment, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe some people don't have that problem. Maybe some people just are, are really confident in their um, their evaluation of things. But I think for most of us, it's easy to step into a place, and there's usually a power dynamic. If this is a situation that we're not familiar with, we'll defer to somebody's expertise. Uh, it could be a boss. It could be a romantic partner who has more experience than we do, etc. Um, with uh, with these types of relationships, but it's easy to just sort of file these things away and just kind of let them percolate a little bit. Um, and sometimes you have this really great opportunity where 
at some point down the road, um, this thing that you first identified in its sort of germinal state kind of blooms and it either becomes a serious problem or not. But um, if it does, it can kind of validate, oh, yeah, you know, I did recognize this at the very beginning. And I guess I should have used my I should have used that feeling as information. Right. I sh- instead of just kind of shoving it away and, and feeling bad about feeling that way. If we look at our feelings dispassionately, if we're able to do that, we can see that our feelings are just information, right? We're just sort of, you know, uh, processing information from the world around us. And if we have a feeling about something, it's because it's triggered some, I don't know, conditioned emotional response we have for some reason, right? We're feeling what we feel for a reason. And so our feelings are just information that we can attune to and uh, try to make sense of it. Um, Geez, even, even as I'm talking about this, I don't know where I'm going except to say, um, yeah, maybe I've just had a couple of experiences. Um, you know, I don't know that it was a phenomenal situation for the other person involved, you know, um, but uh, I've had a couple of experiences where I have, it's been demonstrated to me that I can trust my judgment. And I don't know, maybe that sounds like a stupid thing to talk about, or maybe you don't care. But um, I think for someone like me who... You know, I don't know for most of my life if I would have said um, that I have a confidence problem. You know, it's something I thought a lot about um, in the last few, man, maybe five years of my life. And I know that confidence, especially as it relates to creative confidence, has come up a lot on this podcast. So maybe it sounds like something that I talked a lot about and maybe I'm aware of. But um, it's really only in the last few years that I think I've really accepted and really seen the influence it's had on my life uh, of how much confidence I really lacked. You know, I always walked around with this idea that I was, oh man, wow, dude, it's so cool what we get into. So this is kind of weird. And um, when I was growing up, when I was in middle school, there was this period when I was in sixth grade. You know, my brother and I are twins, Um, I don't know that I've ever mentioned that before, but my brother is my identical twin. And, um, when we were, so, so we sort of have gone through our, our school experience parallel to each other. And so he and I are both starting at this middle school, uh, when we were living in Arizona and, uh, very small school, everybody knows each other. Um, but effectively we have sort of a similar social circle and I don't know what happened exactly, but all of a sudden uh, I start showing up to school and I just hear this mantra over and over again um, that was really surprising to me. But everybody started telling me that I was conceited, which was a new word for me. It's also, it's a strange word for a bunch of sixth graders to know. Like, um, I think for every generation, there's like a set of insults. And I know like when I was in middle school, it was poser. Like you were either um, uh, like being fake or being a poser was like the worst thing that you could be. Right. And, uh, so yeah, that was just like one of our buzzwords. And so all of a sudden it was like, I woke up and there was this new word in the air conceited that I would say about half a dozen people that I was going to school with were using against me. And I don't know why I didn't, I should have sensed that maybe something was up because how is it that half a dozen people wake up one morning and decide that I'm conceited. Right. But that's just something I heard over and over again. And, um, it kind of like threw me for a loop at the time. It really kind of fucked me up. And I don't think it was until, it wasn't until later in life that that I really realized how much that affected me. And, uh, it sounds crazy to say it. I'm not trying to say I was traumatized by it or anything, but, um, but I do remember when I was in my, I would say my, you know, late teens, 17, 18, 19. And I would say when I first really started struggling, you know, kind of with mental health stuff, depression, Um, I remember telling myself repeatedly that I needed to knock myself down a couple pegs. Like I thought, you know, I grew up as someone, um, I mean, in in many ways, my, my actual needs like were not met and I was uh, sort of neglected in a lot of ways. But for someone who was like a pretty talented, smart kid, I was, there was a lot of things I was celebrated for. Um, uh, I think it was a I don't know. It was sort of framed and sort of assumed, I think, that I was going to be successful um, at that time specifically as an actor, but in some sort of creative capacity. And, um, and, uh, 
and, and I, and I, when I did those things, I generally did well, you know, and it's not like I got every audition I went out for. There was plenty of disappointment, but, but overall I was finding success as a young actor, you know, did a couple commercials, um, you know, performed well at this sort of summer performing arts program that I went to, ended up going to, uh, you know, a very reputable, uh, performing arts boarding school, my freshman year of high school, um, and uh, the trajectory seemed to be set. So um, at least in my mind as a kid, I, I never really thought about what my future was going to be. It seemed pretty sure. Um, now, I'm not saying that would have been the case. You know, life is long, all sorts of things happen, etc. But um, that was the trajectory I was on. And when I left boarding school, went back to Arizona, and life changed for me very, very quickly, where I went to a public school, which I left within a couple months to go to some bullshit charter high school, but then when I was like languishing in a junior college and my life was not looking so great, I remember going through this active period where I needed to, I, I really told myself that what I needed was to tear myself down. Like I believed that what was wrong with, what was wrong with me was that I was entitled and that I was conceited. And then I thought there was something special about me. And the way my life was playing out was sort of this great, um, I don't know if there's this phrase that came up in a video that, that we sort of watch as part of our training at work or that I, I sort of show people as part of our training at work that's coming up for me, which is this cosmic right-sizing. You know, it, it, you know what, how my life was unfolding felt like this cosmic right-sizing of how I, how I had been living up to that point, which I thought was entitled, which I thought was privileged, which was absolutely fucking correct. But, you know, I thought I had been pampered and that I was really fundamentally weak and that what I needed was to be hard on myself. I needed to be, um, uh, you know, like a drill sergeant. Like I needed to get full metal jacket on my own ass. You know, I needed to, um, provide structure for myself. Uh, now I look back and I realize while all that may have been true, that that really needed to be supplied by my parents, which they didn't give me. But, um, but I think I also realized, like, if anyone was going to do it, I needed to do it to myself. So I, I proactively started becoming very hard on myself. And um, in hindsight, I, I kind of understand where that came from. Um, and it's not like I, it, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't make sense that I felt that way. Um, I just think it's the wrong approach. And it's kind of weird for me now, especially as I grow up. And I don't know, I feel like we're going into strange territory here, but there is a large population of uh, young adult men, and I don't even want to say young adults, I mean full-fledged adult men, um, who I feel kind of came up in the same cohort as me in terms of, uh, of my generation. And it sounds weird, but it all, it all sort of goes back to Adam Carolla for me. And for most of my life, I've been a huge Adam Carolla fan. But the time that I stumbled on Adam Carolla was around the last probably two and a half years he was on Loveline. And I grew up with MTV. I grew up with Loveline on television. Uh, but I had never really been a fan of it. It was just part of the, the constellation of my sort of adolescent experience. There was MTV and Loveline was on it, but I never really paid attention to it. And I remember... About the time I moved out for the first time, I was like 17 and a half, when I first started really getting depressed, I lived alone, I became very hermetic and, and sort of socially uh, anxious, and I, I really began to isolate, I mean seriously, for the first time in my life. I don't know how it happened, but I stumbled on Loveline on the radio, and I think Loveline aired from 10 to midnight, five days a week, Monday through Friday. And I got to this place where I would just, I enjoyed driving at that time anyway, but I started just driving around every night from 10 to midnight listening to Loveline. And I think eventually I found like a, a internet streaming app on the computer and maybe I was able to listen to it at home. But I, I do have these strong memories of just driving around listening to Loveline. And uh, I know Adam Kroll is not, you know, a lot of people don't like him, but I, I still stand by him. I think he's a phenomenal broadcaster. He was such a formative experience on me. Uh, uh, not that I'm a comedian, but I mean just... Uh, creatively and comedically, I, I remember listening to Loveline, and still I go back and listen to those 
early Loveline episodes, and I just, I, I get belly laughs like you wouldn't believe. Um, I think Adam Carolla truly is a, a comedic genius, probably. And um, I don't know, he's just been a really formative influence on me. And I think at, that t- at the time, I really adopted him as kind of like a father figure. You know, and his whole approach to life was sort of a pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and get your shit together kind of guy. You know, he came from a, a poor family. He was on welfare. Um, and I don't think I registered it this way at the time. Um, I heard about his family, which was like very negligent and sort of abandoning and, and dysfunctional. And it sounded like a fucking, I don't know, it sounded like Narnia to me, like like nothing I had really experienced. Um but there was something about his approach and his presentation and his comedy and, and just his life philosophy that really resonated with me. And uh, I was hooked. I mean, I, I probably, not only did I listen to Loveline every night, I went back and listened to, I think at the time, maybe even every available recorded episode of Loveline that had been archived by the fans and was available online. Um, when he announced he was leaving Loveline, it was like a fucking nightmare for me. It was like the end of... I mean, it was, it was a huge thing. It was a huge disappointment for me. I was really, I mean, really disappointed. It would be like when you're younger and your favorite band announces that they're breaking up. It was really, oh God, I was devastated. You know, it was, it was really upsetting. Very, very disappointing. And I do remember, I don't know how long the gap was until he started doing morning radio in LA, or more specifically when they started podcasting the, uh, the morning LA sh- show that he did for X number of years. But when they started doing that, I listened to every hour of that show that was available online. Um, and yeah, throughout my life, it's just been a, you know, my relationship to the Adam Carolla show has just been huge. I mean, uh, the, you know, his super fan Giovanni, I've done his podcast a few times when I was writing and, and, uh, and performing as The Plastic Arts. You know, Giovanni is sort of, uh, I don't know. Howard Stern has kind of like a, a constellation of characters, right? That if you're into the show, and I've never really been a Howard Stern fan, but there's a constellation of people that if you name are related to the show. Artie Lang, Beetlejuice, that sort of stuff. Uh, Giovanni is, is something like that to the Adam Carolla show. He's the, like the number one super fan of the Adam Carolla show. Um, and I think at some point years ago, I just reached out to him and uh, have done his podcast a few times. have stayed in touch with Giovanni, very sweet guy. Um, and I've done, uh, Mike Dawson is the engineer for the Adam Carolla show. I, I've done his podcast, uh, front of house twice. Um, both times when I was down in LA for other things, I went over to Mike Dawson's place. He, he, he was in a different location the second time I did it, but went over to Mike Dawson's house and did their podcast twice. And Chris Loxamana, I don't know what his title would be over at the Adam, Adam Carolla show, but he had a podcast for a while called Resume that I actually was on and recorded at the Corolla Studios in um, Glendale, I think is where their studios are. So that was like fucking unbelievable. It was like, I never met Adam Corolla, but it was like I was in, I was in the, um, I don't know. It's weird to think about actually. I mean, a, a dream of mine at the time. I, mean, when, I remember when he announced he was leaving Loveline. Of course, it was like a fantasy of mine. One day I wanted to be on Loveline and it was like that dream was like fucking crushed, right? And so I remember when I was doing Chris Loxamana's podcast at the Adam Carolla Studios, it was like surreal to actually be there. And I w- it was like being in, someone, being in a celebrity's, celebrity's house when they're not home, right? Like it was just him and I, and we had sort of full run of the studio. But being in the room where they record the podcast and using the same mics and seeing um, Bald Brian is the name of the, I don't know what, the sound tech, or I don't know what you call him, but... It was just it was just very very strange being in that room. So I think all all I'm saying by all this is that um even as I talk about it I had really sort of forgotten how big of an influence that was on me. But it's funny as an adult. Um I mean I did Mike Dawson's podcast when I was on the Matt Nathanson tour uh, in uh, in 2019 in the beginning of that year. And even at that time, I probably hadn't listened to the Adam Carolla show in like six months, maybe even longer. And I still haven't. I haven't listened to the show in a long time. And it's not like anything happened, except I, my very personal experience about it is that I grew out of the show. Um, I mean, I listened to Adam Carolla for years. I've seen him live multiple times. Um, all great shows. 
And it's not like I was sick of hearing the same stories. You literally hear, I mean, we're on episode 56 of this podcast. And if you've been listening since episode one, there's no doubt you've heard me say a couple of stories two or three times, right? There is things that I say that you're sick and tired of fucking hearing already. And I try to work on the, you know, saying literally, even now I realize I say phenomenally a lot. So that's something I'm trying to work on. Um, there was one other word, but the point is <laughs> the point and ums are just going to fucking stay. You hear me? They're here for now. Right. Maybe one day we'll sort of diminish them, but the ums are here, uh, for the time being. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that, um, it's easy to get sick of somebody that you listen to for an hour every week. What if you're listening to that person four hours every day, five days a week? So 20 hours a week, I'm listening to new Adam Carolla content. You get to a point with um, any broadcaster that you really enjoy, it doesn't matter what comes up on the show, you already know what they're going to say afterwards. It's like being in a fucking marriage with somebody, right? And I know we're strangers, right? Me and Adam Carolla are fucking strangers, but I've, I've literally spent so much time... I mean, the, the cool thing about a podcast radio in general is, you know, it's that theater of the mind thing. Um, it's like as a crisis line counselor, you think that the barrier, there's a barrier between not looking at someone and absolutely there are things that you don't get that we register with visual information, but there's, there's a whole constellation of other things that we can attune to even better by just speaking with someone's voice. And I don't know that it's perfect, but there are all sorts of things that you can pick up about a person just from their voice alone. Right. And so, um, it may sound weird, but you probably can draw on your own experience as a fan of various podcasts, hopefully this one, but you draw close to people just by hearing their voice. And so, um, I think I'm just trying to say that I had that with Adam Carolla and it's not like he said anything to piss me off. Um, he said things that have pissed tons of people off, obviously, but it's never really been a deal breaker for me. I just sort of phased out of it. And it's been hard for me as an adult to sort of look back and, and <laughs> kind of embarrassing, really, to identify that so much of my worldview and how I sort of almost prop myself up for a long time was really informed by Adam Carolla's perspective of the world. You know, I found, and I, and well, there's a larger point to be made here, but I'll just say at that time in my life, when I found it, I was kind of lost. I was looking for a structure, you know, I mean, that's the most practical way to describe it. I mean, when I think woo woo mumbo jumbo stuff or, or, um, or psychobabbly stuff, I was looking for a father figure. Yeah. But you know, what does that even mean? Uh, what does a, what does a father figure do? They provide structure, they provide a model of behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I don't know. I, I think that's something that happens is when you're looking for that, not because you want to, it's just a natural thing we do. It's very easy for us to find that in broadcasters, in entertainers. Um, you know, anybody who shares their opinions, Anyone whose work we admire who also happens to share their opinions about the world, they become very formative for us. I mean, when I was into atheism and skepticism, it was like Carl Sagan, uh, Richard Dawkins was huge for me for a long time, Sam Harris, who has had a, actually a renaissance, right, in the last, um, I don't know, five, six years. Um, uh, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens was huge for me. Right? These were very formative people uh, who shaped my worldview and my way of thinking. Um, and uh, I was impressed by their creative output. I was impressed by their way of thinking. But that was very formative for me. As a, and I, I mean this specifically as a young male. Those were formative ideas for me. Right? Um, and as I've grown up, I, I realize that there is just a, a cohort slash a generation slash po- population of young men uh, or now adult men. Uh, who were who had a similar experience, and there's two things that I kind of <laughs> kind of freaked me out. Um, when I encounter other Adam Carolla fans, I don't like them. Um, I think it's it might just be true that I think anybody has a sort of core inner circle of like super fans who are just kind of noxious to anybody who's reasonable. Um, but just in general, when I have found other males who are into Adam Carolla, they seem kind of sad to me, um, especially if they carry a lot of the same mannerisms into their adult life. And I don't, I don't mean to sound judgmental. I guess it is, it is judgmental. 
but especially as someone who's had a lot of therapy and has been very reflective and um I think has actually had a lot of the a lot of I don't know whatever that Adam Carolla isms and tapestry of thinking that was very helpful and and probably needed by me for one period of my life was really unweaved in therapy you know there were many things that I thought and felt that I had sort of accrued from these sort of Corolla isms that I had sort of accrued and and sort of um were my thinking that I've sort of said in therapy and my therapist is kind of like I've seen their response to that and having to really talk through those things and really reconsider them you know um yeah so where am I going with this um maybe this is a different point but there's just something about being a broadcaster I don't know, something about an echo chamber. If you're surrounded by your fans, you think you're right. But there's just something now as an adult, as someone who's gone through you know, a decade of therapy, I listen to Adam Carolla and I hear a lot of what he says and preaches and a lot of his worldview. And maybe this is very presumptuous. This does not discredit his creative pa- output in the past. It doesn't mean that he's not a, a comedic genius. It doesn't mean that uh, he's one of the best broadcasters ever. It doesn't mean that he wasn't a formative creative influence on me, but there's so much of what he, there's so much of his perspective that I think people adopt that caters to wounded men. And I don't mean, you know, and this is the type of thing that Adam Carolla himself would fucking scoff at, but Adam Carolla was clearly neglected as a child and whatever worldview he created for himself was like a defense mechanism. Right, And maybe he needed it because no one was providing structure for him. So he needed to adopt this worldview that he needed for survival. Right, Like he didn't have a lot of means. He needed to work hard. He needed to pick himself up by the bootstraps, et cetera, et cetera. But I think at what cost? You know, I don't want to presume to know about his life, but it's like he's very successful. But are his, is he going to have a great relationship with his kids when he's an adult? Or are they going to be very estranged from him? I don't know. Um, we're kind of navigating kind of murky territory here. But the thing I'm, the thing I think I'm trying to say is, um, I've had to abandon a lot of that stuff. I've tried to abandon a lot of that stuff. Um, I guess I'm just surprised to find that the things that are the most helpful to me and the things that uh, have actually worked for me in terms of feeling better. Um, have been by letting go of many of those cruel isms that I've adopted. I see. Now I see how I even got to this. I was talking about being hard on myself. I told myself for so long throughout most of my life, confidence. Yes. Now I understand. So we're talking about confidence. You know, I thought I had to be hard on myself for most of my life to succeed. And now I look back on that. And I think in some ways that was good for me. It's good to be discerning. It's good to be, critical, right? It's very easy for us to look at other people who we find to be very non-self-reflective, very non-self-critical to to actually be very entitled and it's odious, right? And earlier I was saying, you know, the things that bother us about other people are the things that bother us about ourselves. Well, if you're a sort of or fancy yourself to be a self-aware person, if you're working very hard on an aspect of your personality that you think needs improvement, um, let's say humility, right? And then you encounter someone like Trump, who's just the least humble person you've ever encountered, right? It is, uh, it's odious to see someone just accept full force and almost, uh, treat as a virtue, something that you've worked very hard to correct in yourself. Um, And so, yeah, I think I, I think growing up, especially, I thought I really needed to be harder on myself. You know, I really needed to take inventory of my faults and kind of crucify myself over them until they were fixed. Hmm. Anyway, as we're talking about it, I feel myself deflating, but it's actually an interesting thing because 
even what I'm feeling now, I, it's happened at other times on the podcast. It's something that comes up in therapy sometimes, and maybe that's uh, boring for you to hear about. But um, I always go back to this idea. I have this fundamental belief about myself that something's wrong with me. And whether it's in conversation on the podcast or if it's in therapy, when I come close to speaking about this idea that maybe there's not something wrong with me, not that I'm perfect, but that I'm not fundamentally flawed in the ways that I tell myself I am or that I think I am, my thinking literally becomes confused. You know, and I want, I, I'm, I, I want you to believe what I'm saying because I, I think it's something that, that maybe it will help other people identify in themselves. But it's like my thoughts literally become confused. I feel disconnected from my thinking. I literally, it's like, and I'm saying literally a lot and I'm not supposed to, but... It's like I lose touch with reality in some way. I detach a little bit. And, you know, my therapist thinks that makes sense and that's something that they understand. And to them, it signals that there's something scary about the idea that there's nothing wrong with me or nothing exceptionally wrong with me, maybe I should say. But, um,. But I don't know. I guess I find myself in this weird, or what feels like this weird catch-22 between I don't agree about living in a world where everything's beautiful and, and you're great and, um, you know, there's that sort of uh, everybody's beautiful, kind of hippy-dippy left-wing kind of thing, and I, I definitely don't fucking side with that. Um, I don't find that helpful. I don't find it practically helpful. I don't find it practically true. Um, and I also, I, I feel like it, 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 it leads to, for many people, it leads to like a lot of delusion and, uh, and real entitlement, et cetera. Um, and I know that term gets thrown around a lot, but, um, I happen to, I don't know, I happen to believe it. What can I say? But, um, but I think because I didn't want to be that person, I ran to the opposite direction. And I think, I don't know that I accomplished the same thing emotionally for myself, but I definitely handicapped myself. I've been, I've been too hard on myself. You know, I think I could have accomplished, I mean, in a way it's kind of like drugs, you know, and I feel like we've talked about this in terms of jazz musicians or something like that, but it's like, it's like drugs. You know, um, I heard some comedians talking about Chris Farley recently, um, saying, you know, they were trying to talk to him about his drug use and he said, yeah, well, John Belushi, like Chris Farley wanted to be John Belushi the kind of big, fat, zofted comedic dude who drank hard, partied hard. And it was like Chris Farley felt he had to embody this archetype in order to be liked, to be loved, or, or to be funny even. And uh, it killed John Belushi, and it ended up killing Chris Farley. Um, where's the parallel here? Where is the parallel here? Um, <laughs> I don't know. And as I'm looking around, I see that I have my Google Doc, Google Doc open to podcast ideas. You will not believe how many notes I took this week of things that came up and said, oh man, I got to talk about that. I got to talk about that. Man, an hour is not going to be long enough for this episode. And of course, I haven't talked about any of it. I had no fucking clue that we were going to be talking about Adam Carolla for a fucking, for a fucking hour here. Um, or 40 minutes rather, I should say. But, um, yeah, what's the point? I don't know. I've been too hard on myself for most of my life. You know, I think it served a purpose probably at some time, but I, I I think if I really had to like take account of my life, I would say it's probably done more harm than good. Um, right. So I'm saying I don't want to be, I don't want to be too lovey-dovey with myself, but I also can't crucify myself all the time. And I think, I would have been exponentially better served if I had just uh, been fair to myself. Ooh, yeah, so not hard on myself. Been fair. And part of being fair is sometimes you're hard on yourself, but the other side of that is you, you celebrate yourself when you deserve it also. I think one of my biggest challenges is even when good things have happened to me or when they continue to happen for me, they don't energize me the way they should because I discount them so quickly. You know, because I'm always working my way back up to zero, when good things happen to me, 
it's hard for me to, there's no moment where I go, wow, this really feels good. What can I do to get more of this? The minute, the moment, the moment it happens, I'm already unweaving it. I'm already untangling it and saying, well, you know, I've sort of made this sort of false equivalency that humility is about being um, self-deprecating, which I, I don't think that's accurate, you know? I think being humble is about maybe have being fully aware of how good you are at things and how talented you are in some areas and the skills that you have, especially the skills you've worked very hard to acquire. Um, and letting that propel you forward. But it's not humble and it's not helpful <laughs> if, uh, if every time something good happens to you because of your hard work, you treat it like nothing and kind of spit on it because it's not good enough. Um, because you should have done it five years ago. Anyway. <sighs> you know, I don't know. I hope there's something in that for you. <laughs> you know, as you listen to it, I, I certainly know I'm not the only one who's felt that way. But I guess I'm trying to draw it back to Adam Carolla in some way. So we've talked about Adam Carolla this whole time, and, and how does this weave back to it? I don't know. Um, you know, maybe it goes back to trusting your judgment. You know, at the time it felt right, and I'm sure I, I needed that um, perspective at, at some point. But as an adult, because I've sort of I've sort of parentalized Adam Carolla, for lack of a better word, for for so much of my life, I feel almost like I'm betraying him to now be an adult and kind of look back on a lot of that perspective and think, oh, actually, I think, I think he's wrong about a lot of things. It doesn't mean I think he's a bad person. It doesn't mean I think he should be canceled. It doesn't believe I, I, it doesn't mean I, I think he's done anything wrong. You know, he's done nothing, he's done nothing to be sort of, uh, skewered for. Not that I, no, I haven't listened to the guy in a few years, but, but I just think he's wrong. You know, um, it makes sense to me why he feels the way that he does. I think it's based on his own upbringing, right? And his own experience, but he's wrong. And that's a weird, that's a weird place for me to be because I don't trust my judgment. I, you know, whether it's Adam Carolla or my therapist or a teacher or even my girlfriend, (laughs) I want someone I trust to tell me what to do because I don't trust my own opinion. And maybe to even bring it full circle, you know, now that I'm in a leader, something like a leadership position in work, I should say, there are times where I have to make hard decisions that impact other people, you know, and it's, it's hard because I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But my supervisor actually said something that was said to her by her supervisor at some point, which was, you know, it's not our job to give people the benefit of the doubt. It's our job to use our, in this situation, clinical experience, right? To apply our, our clinical experience, um, to situations because we have that, uh, response for a reason. Our feelings, our information, and um, our gut is telling us something for a reason. You know, maybe it's good to check in with somebody about it so that you just make sure your instrument's calibrated. But you know, unless there's something really wrong with you, you know, part of growing up and 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 developing is is trusting your own judgment, right? Anyway. Man. Well, me and my girlfriend started playing Candy Crush. Jesus Christ, I'm I'm such a fucking dude, talk about being in your mid thirties playing Candy Crush. I don't even know how we got onto it. We were just talking about it one day. We were both sitting at the dinner table and downloaded the app and started playing. I, I fucking lost my girlfriend, man. She's off in fucking Candy Crush La La Land now. We both started off making pretty good progress. And, and actually, you know, it's a really fucking fun game, actually. Um, first of all, it's probably outdated by like 10 years. Like, who the fuck plays Candy Crush anymore? Um, but it was like, a, I was on like level 23 after a couple of days. And when I saw my girlfriend, I was like, what level are you on? She's like, 83. I was like, babe, you know how long you played for? She was like, two hours? And I was like, you played for more than two hours. And she was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. I gotta say, though, it's a, it's actually um, 
Uh, I think it, it is one of those games that Jonathan Blow would say is uh, unethical. You know, it has the sort of treadmill mechanic of like, it just goes on in perpetuity. There's nothing like you play Candy Crush and it's like a slot machine. It's uh, it's probably even more pernicious than a slot machine in, in some ways. Um, is that fair? No, probably not. Right. I mean, you can spend money in the app. You can also avoid it. You 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 have to spend money um, on a slot machine. But the point is, is that they're constructed the same way when you play Candy Crush. I, I guarantee you they've gathered so much data and engineered that game to fucking get you addicted to it absolutely when you play that game it's like a um it's it's a match three type game you fucking know candy crush i don't need to explain it to you but it's a match three type game when you're looking at whatever level you're on if you hesitate for a second it will show you a move and your instinct is to just make that move it's not always the best move given what you're trying to accomplish but it's like they don't want you to stop playing for a second the moment you have to think is a moment that you can reflect, oh, this is challenging, and you might want to do something else. They keep that shit going as long as they can. And I find there's really, I mean, I think the, the visuals, you know, they're not, um, I don't know, they're not highbrow, but when you just engage with the visuals and the sound and you got the whole thing going, and if your phone's vibrating, it's kind of an immersive sensory experience, right? It's visually, there's something about the way the candy looks and the way the sounds happen and the vibration and just the, you know, the, there's so much color and, and flashing. It's like, it is like a fucking slot machine. And it's like, you can literally play that game for like a half hour before, and a half hour can go by before you even fucking know it. And so it got us sort of looking into it. It's like, we were like, what is, what, what is the end of, end of Candy Crush? How does it end? For the mobile app, there's like 7,952 levels or something like that. And you're like, what the fuck? And then, first of all, you look at these in-app purchases. I've never played these sort of face... Sorry, Mike. I swear to God, I'm getting like an armpit tumor because my fucking deodorant just itches all the time. I don't know what the fuck's wrong with me. Um, I really should, should switch brands, but I just don't. But, um, but um, yeah, we started looking into it. So I've never played these games like Facebook, uh, like Farmville or anything like that. But you hear about people who like spend their life savings on fucking Farmville or something like that. And, my, and I said to my girlfriend, how much money do you think, because you have these in-app purchases, purchases for Candy Crush. You know, it tries to lock you out of the game for a while and it's like, well, for two ninety nine, you can fucking play on. And you're like, who the fuck would spend their money to fucking keep playing Candy Crush? Do something else with your life. But I said, uh, oh man, I'm going to give my girlfriend a hard time here. But I was like, how much, do you, how much money do you think they made on this game last year? And I think she said, like, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand. And I was like, oh, it's millions. It has to be millions of dollars, right? We look it up. In 2018, I don't know what the most recent numbers are, but in 2018, it made over $1 billion. You know, maybe not just on Candy Crush Saga, like the, the classic game. I think they have other suite of games that people fucking play. But it's like, overall, that company made like one like $1.29 billion dollars and you're like what the fuck that's insane how does one small game like this make that much money who the fuck is giving money to candy crush it's fucking fun as shit though I gotta say though, when I play it, I need like a palate cleanser. It's like I play Candy Crush for a while and I feel, I, I feel dumb. One, I'm fundamentally embarrassed that I'm playing it, but then I literally feel stupid after playing it for like 30 minutes. It's like I had to play chess to like, I don't know, wash the fucking shit off me. And I don't know, I wish, I, I don't know, I wish, I wish I wasn't such a snob, right? Like it's like, it's, I guess on the one hand, I wanna, you know, as I play it, I think, wow, this is really fucking smart. You know, it's not chess smart, but it's, when you think someone designed this game, I, I think I'm, I'm sort of trying to see it through the lens of like a game developer, right? Um, the graphics are, they're really pleasant. The sound is really good. And it's just, you just get the, the, the feeling that this is a fucking well-oiled machine to get you to keep playing. I mean, you are definitely on a fucking treadmill and it's designed to do that it's designed to keep you there the same way the casino doesn't have natural light the way the same way there's no clocks 
this game is scientifically engineered to keep you playing. And it's fucking working, apparently. People are just giving billions of dollars to Candy Crush. Excuse me. Unbelievable. But yeah, I texted my girlfriend the other night and I said, thou shalt not play past level 100. I think she's on like 113 now or something like that. But, uh, but um, yeah, otherwise, dude, I thought I was going to spend this whole episode talking about religion and ritual and circling back to uh, I'm thinking of ending things and uh, um, uh, the psycho-spiritual role of the artist in society and superstition. Um it's actually kind of, well, I don't know what it is, but, um, you know, as I'm sort of continuing my education, I'm on the psychology track and I've talked about applying for, to transfer to, um, to, to, uh, to other schools for my psychology. Um, it's been kind of, I don't know if spooky or scary is the right word for it, but I don't really get jazzed up about my psych classes. You know, I, I have found that the the things I get most excited about are the topics in sociology and anthropology. Um, I was especially excited that this week our, our whole module for anthropology was religion and ritual. And it's one of the few times I've really kind of regretted like going to school remotely now and the fact that we're not on site because, you know, I'm confident that I can kind of engage in the material in a way that I, I get what I want out of it. But, you know, I kind of want to dive in deeper, you know, um, but anyway, we watched uh, a lot of, uh, or I should say I watched a lot of videos rather that sort of, I sort of went down the rabbit hole with some of the topics that were coming up um, and some of the readings that we had. But um, honestly, I was uh, I was working the other night talking to a coworker and we happened to stumble on a, a sort of related topic and I was just going off. I was foaming at the mouth talking about spirituality and the role of the artist and inspiration and mysticism and spirituality and religion and ritual and I thought, when I sat down to record this podcast, I thought that's all we were going to talk about. And here I am. I, I've spent uh, an hour talking about Adam Corolla. So, such is life. I don't really want to get into it now because I feel like I would. I feel like I would get off to the races, but um. Yeah. I know it's boring for you to listen to, but I'm trying to sit here in silence. I've been telling myself that I need to do more meditation. As I've been going to bed most nights, I, I'll take melatonin. I'll fucking take two of them, honestly, if I'm being honest with you. As a sober person, I have there's a part of me that has felt like melatonin is my one... Um, I don't know, mind-altering substance <laughs> that I sort of uh, have taken um, in the last, I don't know, what is it now, like, th I don't know, three and a half, four years, something like that? I don't even know. Um, but yeah, man, fucking crazy dreams. But the point is, is that I'll, I'll lay in bed and I, I have gone back to my meditation app and I'll put it on as I'm going to sleep. What's up with people that like AS, it's called ASMR, right? Where you just, you hear people talking like this. And they whisper into the microphone. And you literally hear the fucking spit and saliva in their mouth. Oh, that shit's fucking spooky to me. And you can't convince me it's not sexual. It's definitely fucking sexual for the people who are into it. Um, but there's something about that, uh, th this meditation app that I use. Um, they have this whole, it used to be very modest. And now it has a whole suite of features. I'm sure they're doing incredibly well and making a shit ton of money from it. But, you know, they've you know, I guess they've been compelled to really augment the fucking shit that they provide. And so they have this whole facet now that's about going to sleep. And, you know, I don't know if it's just too much that, you know, they have one dude's voice who does the whole thing. And I don't know if it's just, they don't have the capacity to just have this guy do everything, but they brought on like more people to voice shit. And I don't know, the voices are fucking awful, man. Like there's, there's, it's one thing to have a genuinely soothing voice 
I'd like to think your boy has one. But it's one thing if your natural speaking voice is soothing and calming, or if you're trying to sound, or if you're, yeah, if you're trying to sound soothing and relaxing. Because those are two very different things. And if you're trying to sound soothing and relaxing, it's actually going to pull focus for me, right? It's going to be distracting for me. And there was a couple times, you know, I like the main guy's voice. He's pretty chill. But it's like you hear this other dude and this other girl, and they're literally talking like this. This is the sound of my soothing voice. It's fucking annoying, man. I think, wow, this is really disingenuous. Anyway, even as I'm talking about it, I don't care. (laughs) Well, well, I don't know what to tell you, folks. We were doing very strong. Uh, We were off to the races. I spent the whole time just going off in a direction I didn't anticipate going, and um, I feel like we're kind of creeping to a halt here, if I'm being honest. Um... I don't know. I guess I bandied around the idea of making the podcast 50 minutes, five zero minutes. Although it's not, maybe this sounds like a stupid thing, but I'm so, I'm such like, um, I, I'm way too aesthetically, um, concerned. I'm, 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 I was going to say I'm a notorious, but that sounds like a good thing, but I'm so, I, it's not OCD. It's, it's, I don't know what it is, but it's like now that I've broken, uh, the hour mark for most of the episodes. Like when you look at the podcast in iTunes or even on Spotify, it'll have the sort of time mark for all the episodes. It's like, I feel like there's something visually, um, like I like things to be uniform and there's something visually unappealing. If that number starts going to five zero, right? If you're looking at the, uh, litany of episodes that we have so far, and there's that sort of bracketed timestamp change, it just seems like it's it would be visually unappealing. So how stupid is that? That that is what guides your fucking boy's decision making process. The aesthetic, the visually aesthetic uh, uh, pleasantness of the timestamp on the podcast episodes is why I don't want to go down to fifty minutes. Fuck if the last ten minutes of every episode sucks. Now that I've done it, I want to keep doing it. I mean, I haven't mentioned it this episode, but I've been filming myself doing the last couple episodes because I want to do the video podcast. And half the reason I'm doing it is because when I finally do, the, when I actually make them public, I want them to be consistent. Is it weird that like I watch other video podcasts or any podcast that changes over time and it's like, yeah, it's not a, um, it's not a perfectly cohesive thing. You know, I don't live and die by the Joe Rogan podcast, but it's like if you look at the early episodes, they fucking are ugly as shit. There's so many episodes that look awful, and they changed over time. But this, see, this is what I'm talking about with being hard on myself. It's like I, once I step, once I'm out of the gate with something, I want that to be it. I just want to work that system. And it's like if something about that has to change, I just want to start over. That's fucking nuts, man. There really is something wrong with me. I mean, in a way, we were talking about this with me um, wanting to interview my boy uh, Field Medic. You know, I've decided this is a stream of consciousness podcast, and so I want to do 100 episodes. And it's like, it would be, first, there's something jarring for me aesthetically about having an interview if I don't do more of them. Or if this was going to be a guest show, I should have had guests already. You know, it's like, I'm not going to let myself have guests for like 100 episodes. Like, I have to justify the structure. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Does that make me thoughtful or does that make me fucking crazy? Is this exactly the type of self defeating thinking that has kept me? from being successful to date. I don't know. If I was successful, you could probably point to it and say, well, that's why he's successful, man. Look how thoughtful he is about the structure or branding or whatever the fuck you want to call it. But if you're not successful, well, there you go. I think we have our answer, folks. Anyway, um, it's all good. That's all good. So let's do it. Let's put a, let's put a, what do you call it? Let's put a bullet in this thing. Let's put a put a pin in this thing. I don't know. Let's uh, let's end this episode. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. If you're a fan of this fucking podcast, give us a five star review. Type a couple sentences about why you like it. Seriously. 
Um, we've had some good reviews. We've had some awful reviews. But that's how you know you're doing something interesting. We're executing a concept here. And uh, um, as I'm saying that, I'm, I'm recalling that we actually have an episode called The Cult of, of Concept, <laughs> where I talk about how that's a bad thing. But that's not the point. Who said we're beyond being hypocritical? The point is, is that we're executing a concept here. Right? And, and if, the, if this is your shit, this is your shit. And you need to let the world know. Give us a five-star review. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why other people like us would. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the podcast, send them your favorite episode and say, here you go, man. This is my shit. Let it be your shit, too. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.